All right, today we're going to get the big picture of Nahum. So please turn there if you haven't already. This comes after Jonah, Micah, and then you come to Nahum. The changes of life eventually lead us to recognize the illusion of our own control on things. I'll explain what I mean in, in just a moment, but what, let me just ask you this. What circumstances of your life remind you of how little you are in charge? I don't know. Some of you may think you're in charge of your life. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But do you think you're in charge of your life? And those of you who don't think you're in charge of your life, what circumstances of your life remind you of how little you are in charge of your life? Well, I thought of some. For example, our mortality. Your mortality, my mortality reminds me that I'm not in charge. In fact, I heard of a funny story one time. Some woman tried to kill herself by jumping off this really tall building. And she wasn't successful because she killed some other woman who was walking on the footpath below her. She killed that person who wasn't expecting to die. When she was expecting to die, she lived. Our mortality is, well, you, you might want to die and you don't. Most of us don't want to die and we might. Mortality reminds us we're not in control. Another one, sins from our past that might continue to haunt you. I certainly have some of those sins from the past that continue to haunt me. Remind me of just how I'm not in control of things. Uh, a third one, the uncertainty about the future. Uh, you know, so, some people get obsessed with, uh, with the future. They want to know how their, how their retirement funds are doing or, you know, am I going to have grandchildren? And if, and if you do have grandchildren, how are they going to grow up, you know? And my children, you know, you know, you know, and the list goes on and on. The, the uncertainty about the future, we might fret and worry. And, the, and, of course, that reminds us we're not in charge. A fourth one, the fear of other people. <laughs> oh, what's that person going to do to me? What's my work? I wonder, I wonder if my workmate is slandering me. You know, you hear him talking over there. And you, you know, the list goes, the fear of people just remind us we're not in control of our lives. Another one, things you don't like about yourself remind you you're not in control. You know, that, uh, that health issue or the, uh, you know, the, you know may, maybe you don't like your mental ability or, you know, the way you look when you look at yourself in the mirror or how much hair or lack of hair you have or the freckles or, you know, your skin color. The list goes on and on. Or maybe the desires you can't seem to control. You know, some people just are obsessed with certain things and, uh, you know, they, they, they can't stop looking at pornography, for example. It's a big one with with many guys, desires they can't seem to control. And another one is maybe just the wear and tear on your body as you grow older. That, that often reminds me of how I'm not in control. Man, I, I just look back, <laughs> look back at your photos as, when you were kids. <laughs> that will remind you you're not in control. <laughs> it could be quite humorous. But there's many circumstances in life, isn't there? But there's little control in those circumstances. That was exactly the situation in which Israel found themselves in the 7th century B.C. 
Many circumstances, but little control over them. And this is when the prophet Nahum wrote his book, exactly when Israel was in a state when they had little control over the circumstances that they were in. Let me give you a quick overview here, very quick. Okay? There's three chapters in this book, and it, it could be broken down like this. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, essentially is beginning the book by giving us an introductory psalm on the character of God. And we'll get there in a moment, but we're not going to start there. But it gives us a one, some wonderful glimpses of who God is. Number two, um, you can see there in chapter 1, verse 9, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2, it, it addresses Judah as well as the city of Nineveh, which, of course, was the capital city of Assyria at that time. And then, starting in chapter 2, verse 3, to the end of the book, Nahum speaks to the city of Nineveh at length. And as, you read, as we're going to read that, it becomes clear what this vision is about. You say, what is it about? I'm glad you asked. It's about God's promise to destroy the Ninevites as judgment for their sins. It was God's promise to destroy the Ninevites as judgment for their sins. And so, as we look through the book of Nahum today, we are going to look for the answer to this one question... Who is in charge? Who is in charge? Well, number one, we can see from the book of Nahum that, well, let's just ask the question, is Judah in charge? I remind you, it was the Assyrians in 722 B.C. who conquered the northern territory of Israel, otherwise called Israel. And so they, you know, they, they've come and they're gone, they're off the scene, Assyria conquered them. So all that's left is the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, so Nahum addresses the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and we, we want to ask and answer this question of, is Judah in charge? As God's chosen, covenanted people, they often thought they were in charge. They would think, hey, we're special. No other nation on the planet has been given these kind of promises from God. They're not God's covenanted people. We are. Look how good we are. And they thought they deserved all kinds of blessings and God's protection and, and this sort of thing, and they sometimes would think they were in charge as a result of that. Well, is Judah in charge? Well, the self-confident answer to the question is yes. That's the self-confident answer. But is this what Nahum says? Well, let us begin by looking where God addresses and in this case, he's addressing both Judah and Nineveh, and it gets confusing exactly who is God addressing in this next passage we're going to look at. Uh, sometimes it's only Judah. Sometimes it might be both of them, but most of the time it's probably Nineveh. Anyway, I think God purposely left it a bit vague, quite frankly. Anyway, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to start there. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while Tangled like thorns, and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord. 
a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, excuse me, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace, O Judah. Keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's continue on into verse 2 of chapter 2. But chapter 2, verse 1 says, He who scatters has come up before, my, before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptier has emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Let's end there. It's a bit confusing who exactly God is talking to there at times, isn't it? Uh, most of the time, it's probably Nineveh, but some of the times, as you saw there, Judah is mentioned. I've given you some pictures of, of Nineveh here. Let's look at the first one. Because according to this, this passage, Judah clearly did not have control. Instead, they, what, what did God say? They needed a refuge, and God was their refuge. Now, to understand this book fully, I've given you some pictures here, and we're going to talk about the city of Nineveh, because we need to know that Assyria was the great power in the Middle East. You can see there, that according to that topo map, that uh, they were the great power in the Middle East during the 8th and 7th centuries B.C. The capital city of Nineveh was one of the the grandest and the most powerful cities on earth. Its size, power, and wealth inspired stories and fables. Its walls were a good picture of this magnificence. As you'll see here, I've given you a couple pictures. Uh, there, there's a replica uh, of the walls of Nineveh. And, and by the way, uh, <clears throat> there were at least two series of walls surrounded the whole city. And, and, it just, and they just ran for kilometers. The inner wall, which was the higher of the two walls, you can see there's a drawing of, of what it would look like. Uh, the inner wall was higher than the other one, but the inner, uh, the inner wall, which, that was probably, uh, uh, the inner wall, which was the higher, it was, was about maybe 30 meters high, 100 feet tall, and it was wide enough for, it was said, for three chariots to race each other on top of the wall. So it was a massive wall. Maybe, uh, as you know, it's hard to say, but, but it also had a moat that was about 50 meters wide and about 20 meters deep. So as you can see, this, this, this city was impressive. It was a great city. It was a massive city. It was a gigantic city, and it was considered to be impregnable. And, and it also had the Tigris River and other smaller rivers surrounding the city, and it made the city appear like it was undefeatable and impregnable. It was a gigantic city. I remind you, Jonah had preached in Nineveh, perhaps a, a century earlier, about 100 years earlier, leading this 
polytheistic city to repent. Even the king so-called repented. But that was in the middle of the 8th century. Uh, There's another drawing of what uh, Nineveh may have looked like. But, you know, when Nineveh went there, it was the middle of the 8th century. And and here it is, as we come to Nahum now, it's now approximately 100 years later. It's in the middle of the 7th century, approximately. And their repentance was obviously a thing of the past. They destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel, including the capital city of Israel, Samaria, in 722 B.C., And by the year 663, they had pushed their conquest hundreds of kilometers into Egypt, as you saw on that uh, that map earlier. And Egypt, who was once a world superpower, fell to the Assyrian Empire. Throughout these conquests, well, where's Judah? (laughs) Where's Judah in the midst of all this? By the way, you can see the hill country of Judah there. I've given you that topo map so you can see that they're, they're up on the high area. They're not down in the low plains. And so, which is, which is one of the reasons why the Assyrian Empire pretty much left them alone up to this point. They, they had basically bypassed Judah, had gone all the way down into Egypt and conquered Egypt. So throughout all these conquests, Judah's kind of just sitting up in the mountains there watching and, and listening to the reports of what's going on around them. As city after city and country after country fell to Nineveh and the Assyrians. You could think of the people of Judah, they were kind of like the hillbillies of their days. I don't know if you know what a hillbilly is, but we have them in the United States and they, they live up in the hills and they do all kinds of, of interesting things as a as opposed to city slickers. Now, that was a, uh, that was a politically correct term, interesting. Um, anyway, if you don't know anything about hillbillies, you can come and talk to me later. But they, they were essentially the hillbillies of their days. They weren't the, uh, the, they weren't the in crowd. They weren't living amongst the, uh, the, the city dwellers and amongst the coast where, where the more refined people, so to speak, lived. They lived up in the hills. In fact, uh, Jerusalem is approximately... 800 meters above sea level. And so there they sat for years and even decades as they just watched the tide of the Assyrian Empire uh, rise up and it just washed all around them. If you've ever gone to the beach and you kind of maybe stand on a rock on a beach and you kind of watch the the, the waters kind of just gently come in as the tide's coming in. Sometimes you might have a, a bigger wave than another kind of comes up and surrounds you as you're standing on a rock. Well, that's essentially what was going on to Judah. They're watching the tide of the Assyrian Empire just kind of rise up and, and wash all the way around them, even threatening their cities as its power is growing higher and higher and greater and greater. They realized they weren't in control. They were not in charge of their circumstances. In fact, much of Judah experienced more than just Assyria's threats. And we know from surviving Assyrian records that the Assyrians destroyed almost 50 cities of Judah. So these were not just idle threats we're talking about here. Almost 50 cities fell to the Assyrians. And in fact, one of them was Lachish, and you can read about it in the book of Kings. And there's even graphic pictures of Lachish's destruction that survived this day 
and, and, and the, the Assyrians, they would take this, the, the clay and they would, they would carve these images on the clay. And they were called, uh, some called them reliefs or base reliefs. And some of them are even found in the British Museum in London, England. And I've given you a picture of one here of the city of Lachish. These are what the Assyrians would draw of their conquests. And they were graphic and gory and, and just disgusting sometimes. But to them, they were proud about their conquest. And so, they, you know, they didn't have digital cameras to take pictures to remind them of their great conquest. So they, this was their idea of, the, of their digital camera. And so it was during this time that Nahum prophesied. It was during this time that God raised up a prophet to prophesy. And it is right here that we find the book's enduring relevance for today. Because you might be, again, you might be sitting here thinking, what does this book have to do with me? I mean, we're, we're talking 7th century B.C.? Come on. It's now 2011. Give me a break. What does this have to do with me? Well, God's special people, His covenanted people, could not have had less control of their terrible circumstances than they did at this time. But I remind you that God is, he continued to call them through His prophet, Nahum, and through His word, and He's calling them to continue to trust Him despite the fact they're not in charge, despite the circumstances around them look doom, like doom and gloom. So I ask you, how is your life going right now? How is your life going right now? Maybe things for you are going well for you at the moment, despite the fact that we're in this recession or coming out of this recession, whatever it is. Maybe things are going well, you know, physically you're okay, financially you're okay, uh, you don't have any major things to to, to complain about. Maybe things are going oh well. And if that describes you, you need to stop and check yourself. Do you really think that you are in charge of your world? Do you? <laughs> the only world that you're in charge of is the one that's in your mind. You know the one, you know the one I'm talking about? You know the one that you daydream and, and, and uh, is not reality? The one in your mind where you always do the right thing, always say the right thing, always go to the right places. You know, if, and if you're, if you're like me, I used to daydream about sports. Sports used to be my God. And, you know, I used to daydream about making, making the perfect three-pointer in a basketball game or, you know, shooting the soccer ball from half, you know, the halfway line and just over the goalie's hands into the top corner of the goal. These are the sort of things, like, you know, that's just ridiculous. Or, or the hole-in-one in golf, which has never happened and never will. You know, that's, that's, that's all in my mind. Maybe you've got these sort of things going on in your own mind. It, it's not reality, is it? The only world you're in charge of is, is that one in your own mind. And the reality is this world doesn't exist. It never has, it never will. And maybe you've been, uh, sadly, you, you can go to bookstores today, you can find all sorts of, again, interesting books on uh, personal power or the the power of positive thinking and these sort of things. There's plenty of those sort of things out there. If you want to make money, just write one of those kind of books. You don't have to believe what you say. Just talk about the power of positive thinking and you'll probably make money. But my friend, know this. It's a lie when anyone tells you that you are in charge. Mind over matter does not exist. 
the book of Nahum presumes that people will have a hard time in this world. If you're a Christian, you need to realize that God is good and that He is our only hope. We can't depend on ourselves. It's not your mind over matter. It's not your positive thinking that's going to get you through a recession or, or cancer or anything else. But sadly, we tend to forget this truth when, when life is going well for us. When life's not going so well, hopefully, hopefully we run to the rock, the God of our salvation. But when life's going well, we kind of tend to forget God and we think we don't need God and, uh, you know, I'll just get myself through this. By the way, God does bless us in many ways. That's true. Yet our hope has to be finally placed not in the blessings that God gives us, but in the one who gives us the blessings. You understand that? It's, it's, it's the sovereign God who gives us the blessings. He is the one whom we need to hope in and trust in. And you can see that even in chapter 1, verse 7 of Nahum. Nahum 1, verse 7, it says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. So I ask you, who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Well, so far we know this much it's not Israel, and it's certainly not us. By implication, we can imply here that not only is not Judah or Israel in charge, we're not in charge either. Well, the second question we need to ask then is this Are the enemies of God and of God's people in charge? Are the enemies of God and of God's people in charge? Well, most of Nahum's book is taken up with the enemies of God's people, and for very good reason. These enemies were powerful. They were cruel. Uh, all you have to do is go to the British Museum in London, look at those reliefs, and you'll, you'll get a good idea of just how cruel and powerful they were. I've given you a couple other pictures here. Uh, this first one's from... The, the British Museum in London. You can see in the background there the entrance to the Assyrian section. The, the, these are the reliefs from Assyria that are in the British Museum in London. The reliefs in that, in that museum there clearly show the brutality with which the Assyrians treated the opponents in battle. And, I, and, and I've given you another picture here to show you just how cruel they were because you have to understand, the, the Assyrians did not have POW camps. <laughs> by POW, I hope you know what I mean, by prisoners of war. They didn't have prisoners of war. You either ran for your life or you're dead. That was the only options. There was no Geneva Convention back then. <laughs> okay, There were no rules of war. The Assyrians didn't care about that. You can see in the relief, it just shows men impaled by spikes. They, they, had, uh, they would just pile up heads, and they would mutilate the bodies. It was disgusting to think about, but that's what they did. And you need to understand the times and what the Assyrians did to understand what God's Word is saying here. The Assyrians were what Joseph Stalin only aspired to be. <laughs> it's, it is said that, Maybe up to 90 million of his own people died, by the way. Joseph Stalin may have killed up to 90 million of his own people. He was, he was brutal. But the Assyrians were worse. When they conquered the city, they would completely depopulate that city. Completely. 
they would wipe it out, and then, as if that wasn't bad enough, then they would bring in other people to resettle the city. That was the problem with, with um, Samaria. That's why the Jews of Jesus' time didn't like the Samarians. You know, they would, they would avoid the Samarians. They, and the disciples couldn't believe that Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well because they, we have no dealings with them. Why? Because when the Assyrians conquered in 722 B.C., they resettled. So those, those so-called Jews up there, they weren't Jews, according to a purebred Jew. They were, they were half-breeds. They were Gentiles. They were dogs. They didn't like them, so they didn't have any dealings with them. That's what the Assyrians did. They would resettle with people from other places for the purpose of hopefully never having an uprising. They would never have trouble with those people ever again. That is what the Assyrians were famous for. Yet God is not intimidated by any nation. I'll remind you, God reigns supreme over even the Assyrians and the Ninevites. No king has any power except for the power that God gives to that king or that kingdom. And uh, the Bible says that God deposes kings and kingdoms just as quickly as he raises them up. Uh, Read the book of Daniel. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Nahum's book reminds these enemies of God who is in charge. Now, this is an unusual book because part of most, I say most of this book was written to God's enemies. It's a unique book in that way. And in the next passage, we learn whom God has leveled his sights on and what awful destruction awaits them. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Now, we're going to read a very large section here, okay? But it's a short book, all right? So hang with me. We're going to read starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, all the way to the end of the book, okay? Chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the road or the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. By the way, that's talking about Nineveh there. That is a prophecy of Nineveh. Anyway, let's read on verse 7. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of the doves, beating their breast. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt! Halt! they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion cubs, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey, and his dens with flesh. Behold! I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. 
I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comfort for you? Are you better than Noaman that was situated by the river? That had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put in Lubim were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in the midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like, are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Thus ends the prophecy of Nahum. The point of the whole book of Nahum is made very explicit in chapter 2, verse 13. I want you to look at it. Chapter 2, verse 13. In case you've missed the point, here's the point. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. God says, Behold, I am against you. In fact, he didn't just say it once. He, he says it more than one time in this book. In fact, he even says it in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you. Do you get the point? 
Can any more serious words be imagined than that God is against you? God is promising here to actively oppose them. He's not just saying, I'm going to ignore you. I'm going, he's not just saying, I'm going to leave you alone to your own misery. No, God is saying, I am actively opposed against you. I am coming for you. The time is near. My friend, meditate on that phrase there. I am against you. Imagine what it would be like to have Almighty God look at you and say to you, I am against you. In the book of Nahum, God notifies Assyria that his time has run out. His patience with its sinful ways has ended, and the self-imagined, invincible empire will be defeated. That's what he's saying. They thought they were invincible, but God says, no, your time is done. You are going to be defeated. Its defeat will be totally complete. Not a partial one, but a total defeat. If you look at chapter 1, verse 14... Uh, you can see it quite clearly here in chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Their time's done. Even the so-called gods Assyria worshipped will be destroyed. God said the king and his kingdom will be utterly destroyed. Even the king will be killed. I mean, he, he's the ultimate representation of the empire, is he not? And it says that he's going to be laid in his grave. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, you have to remember this. As we look at this passage, we need to remember that Nahum's prophecy would have been written at the height of the Assyrian Empire's power. At the height of its power, this was written. In other words, while the empire is still intact, while Nineveh seems invincible, and they're conquering the known world, this is what God told of that empire. So what happened to the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh? Well, in case you don't know, let me tell you. I'm quoting from one commentator here. You can see it on the screen. Quote, Nineveh's end was absolutely traumatic. The Medes, in an alliance with the Babylonians and the Scythians, laid siege to the city in 612 B.C. and then found themselves aided by rain and rising rivers. These rivers that had aided in the city's protection flooded up against the city's walls until great sections of the walls fell away. Just as Nahum had predicted in chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6, by the way, says the gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. That prophecy was given at the height of the Assyrian Empire. I move on. The attackers then poured into the city and sacked it. Before the invaders could grab him, Assyria's king gathered himself and his household together in an immense funeral pyre and burned himself, his wives, and his concubines to ashes. The invaders running rampant in the city plundered Nineveh dry. When the site of ancient Nineveh was finally discovered and excavated in the 19th century, archaeologists found no, no stores of silver and gold objects 
as they were hoping they would. It was absolutely empty. Everything was taken. After pillaging the city, the invaders then burned and razed it to the ground. Indeed, these first archaeologists found unusually deep strata of ashes. When Nineveh fell, it fell hard. Nineveh passed with unusual speed from the very center of history to being entirely forgotten. Its location became lost to human memory and became a matter of speculation for over 2,000 years. People knew the name Nineveh from the Bible and the Babylonian records, but they could not figure out where it was located. It was not until 1842 that archaeologists rediscovered it. End quote. By the way, if you're not sure where ancient Nineveh is located, it's located in modern-day country of Iraq. The modern-day country of Iraq. This was a massive city, a glorious, gigantic city, and they couldn't even find it until the year 1842. God wiped it off the map. And my friend, I hope you realize how fast and how far you can fall. You might think you're in charge, but you're not. You might think you're above falling, but you are not. The God of the book of Nahum is, is not only the God over his people, he executes justice against everyone who has sinned against him. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 2, you will see this. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. You learn something about God from that verse? I hope you do. This is a warning for all of God's enemies to beware of his judgment. Beware, my friend. You are not above falling. You are not above God's judgment. You are not beyond God's reach. Your sin will be held accountable. You can't oppose God and you cannot get away with it. You never will get away with it. What does the Bible say? Be sure your sin will find you out. Some of us might think we can look at pornography on the internet in the privacy of our own homes or the privacy of our computer at work and think we can get away with it, but you cannot. God sees all and knows all. God is committed to what is just. He's committed to what is right. He's committed to what is good. That is his character. He's revealing his character there in chapter 1. So therefore, what, what, what is it revealing to us? That he's going to judge every nation in history and he's going to judge every individual in eternity. Every nation, every individual will be judged for their life, for their, for their sin. Consider what this means for us as individuals in a church, okay? What does it mean that God is jealous, that God avenges, he's going to take vengeance on his adversaries, and he's reserving wrath for his enemies? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a church? Well, one thing it means is as long as this world endures, guess what? Trials, persecution, affliction, and difficulties will beset us. But the church's hope will endure. That's the good news. The church's hope will endure. Christ calls us to be of good cheer. Why? What, what did he say? Because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Yes, trials will continue to face us while we live in this world. 
but only so long as we are in this world. That's the good news. Trials will beset us in this world, but only as, as long as you are in this world. This life is short. It's a vapor. And if we are His, our hope will outlast our trials. And I am looking forward to that day when my sin nature will be gone. Pain, sorrow, crying, all that bad stuff is going to be gone. It's true for us as individuals. It's true as, as, as a church. We never need to fear that God's enemies are finally in charge. You don't need to fear the UN. You don't need to fear uh, terrorism. You don't need to fear that person that you're afraid of. You don't need to fear the New Zealand government, as scary as it is. You don't need to fear that. They're not in charge. They're not ultimate. They're not going to last. Okay, well, we've seen that we're not in charge. We've seen that Judah and Israel weren't in charge. We've seen that God's enemies aren't in charge. Then you might be wanting to know, then is anyone in charge? (laughs) Who is in charge? Is God in charge? Well, Nahum's answer is God is in charge. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way. Notice, he's in charge. He has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. By the way, you can include earthquakes there. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. So the implied answer, you look at verse Uh, Verse 6, you'll see the rhetorical questions there. The implied answer to the questions of verse 6 is what? No one. No one can stand up to God. He's the one who's in charge. Why? Because God is the most powerful. (laughs) In these verses, we learn something about God's character. Number one, we learn, first of all, that God is jealous, according to verse 2. God is jealous. Now, what does that mean? Now, don't, don't take that how you... You probably used to think of that as a child, okay? That is not the kind of jealousy that God has. When God said he is jealous, in other words, it it means this, that he does not want false gods to be worshipped because he is the only and true God. There are no other gods. He is the only God, therefore he is the one to be worshipped, and he is jealous of that worship. Second of all, we learned that he is patient. He's not quick to anger, if you look at verse 3. He is slow to anger, in fact, it says. Now, if you have never put your, your faith and your trust in Jesus alone, listen closely. Listen closely. Because I know some of you in here have never done that. Some of you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus alone. I'm talking to you. 
God's patience and long-suffering nature should never be taken to indicate that He is indifferent to sin. He's not. Just because He has not punished someone yet because of their sin doesn't mean that He never will. Please understand that. Just because you have gotten away with your sin so far doesn't mean you always will. Just because you've seen somebody else get away with their sin doesn't mean they always will. This all-powerful God is jealous, and he's also patient. But this jealous God has committed himself to the truth. He's committed himself to avenging sin. Did you notice what it says there in verse 2? The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He will. That's a promise. He's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. Judgment day is coming. And we were all going to give account to God for our lives and for our sin. He knows our sin, every one of them. And you're going to stand before this holy God and no excuses are going to work. You can't say, but... The judge before whom you stand, I'll remind you, is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is completely holy. He is determined and he is always right. He never makes a wrong decision like some judges do today. And there will be no possibility of appeal. When he makes his ruling, it's done. There is no appeal in God's court. And if you're convicted, you don't get out on parole. Do you understand that? That is the judge you're dealing with. Well, let's wrap this up interesting as you study the minor prophets there's only two of the minor prophets that end their book with a question and Nahum is one of them the other one is Jonah we looked at a couple weeks ago in in the book of Jonah God concludes the book of Jonah by reprimanding Jonah for his callousness toward the very people we've been talking about in this book the people of Nineveh in fact God asked the question at the end of Jonah should I not pity Nineveh should I not pity Nineveh? Now in the book of Nahum, see what Nahum tells the king of Assyria in the very last verse. Chapter 3, verse 19. Look at the very, in fact, the very last phrase. It says, For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Question mark. By concluding his book with a question, it's almost as if the prophet wants to draw the reader's mind back to Jonah's prophecy from a century earlier and the mercies that God showed to the people of Nineveh. He was very gracious and merciful to them. Eventually, though, Nineveh decided to reject God's mercies. Instead, they chose violence. They chose, and I'm just mentioning a few things in this book, they, Violence was one of them. Materialism was another one. Their own selfishness was another. Idolatry and even witchcraft. Uh, the new KGV mentioned sorceries there. So Nineveh, who was once the object of God's mercy, became the object of God's wrath. In the New Testament, God's judgment fell most sharply not on any city, but it fell on a person. you know who that person is? God's wrath fell most sharply on his own son, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the Messiah. But when God's judgment fell on his son, 
the Son defeated His enemies. Look what Christ accomplished through His death on the cross according to Colossians chapter 2, which says this, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to our shame by triumphing over them in Him. May I remind you of the final battle? And no, I'm not referring to C.S. Lewis's final book in that wonderful series I love so greatly, The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm not talking about that. The final battle mentioned in the book of Revelation. The final battle is not going to consist of the fall of any mere city. It's, it's going to consist of the ultimate judgment of God's enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. And, and it, it, which, by the way... When God wipes out his enemies, Jesus Christ comes, uses his mouth to destroy his enemies. Then he's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to rule over his kingdom. And we can be confident that this is going to happen because the Bible says so. God has already kept many of his promises, so you can be assured he's going to keep the other promises mentioned there. So we can be confident that this is going to happen, that God's enemies are going to be destroyed the final battle is going to come. Satan will finally be defeated. And Christ will rule and reign. And there will finally be peace and no more sin and no more sorrow. Why do we know this is going to happen? Because the point of the book of Nahum shows us that God is in charge. God is in charge. Judah wasn't in charge. Israel wasn't in charge. They were destroyed in 722 B.C. We're not in charge. You can't control anything basically in your life God's enemies weren't in charge the only one who is in charge is God he's the one whom we should